Get ready for season three of the Tron Grand Hackathon 2022 with a total of $1.2 million in prizes across Web3, DeFi, GameFi, NFTs, and the newly added Academy and Ecosystem tracks. The wait is over. Tron Grand Hackathon presented by TronDAO. To learn more, visit trondow.org. All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and not necessarily those of the blocks. Podcast guests may have taken positions in the assets or other matters discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. For full terms, visit theblockcrypto.com slash terms dash service. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to The Scoop. I'm your host, Frank Chaparro, editor-at-large at The Block, and we are on-site at Converge, and today joining us on the other side of the mic from Miami, Florida, one Mr. Nick Carter of Castle Island Ventures. Sir, thanks so much. Hello, Frank. Thank you for finally uh, including me on your podcast. Absolutely. It's been a long time coming. I feel like I've I've known of your existence for almost 25% of my life, which is pretty wild if you contextualize it like that. That sounds about right. Yeah. I mean, uh, you wrote a story about us when we were at Fidelity and I felt very hard done by, but then, you know, out of that, a beautiful friendship blossomed over the years. We reconciled our differences. Um, so let's, let's maybe go through that journey. You were one of the first crypto enthusiasts at Fidelity, or at least one of the first sort of people working in that part of the firm. Yeah, I was sort of one of the first dedicated crypto staff there um, as they were standing up a fund internally. Certainly not the first crypto enthusiast. There were a few once I got there. That was why I joined mm. because I you know, was kind of doing a little survey of mm -hmm. TradFi and I uh, wanted to work on behalf of crypto or in crypto and there wasn't really much of an industry at that point. And Fidelity was by far the most pro-Bitcoin, pro-crypto organization out well, there. Well, Abigail Johnson, I think, was one of the first to come out and say she supported crypto. At the same time, other CEOs were talking about how it was rat poison squared. and Consensus 2017, I think, she gave a speech. Uh, they started mining in 2014 and uh, did a bunch of experiments. And then you found or convince Matt to start your own fund? No, Who Matt, did the convincing? Matt convinced me. Yeah. I wanted to stay. And so what's that journey been like? Well, I felt disloyal, frankly, leaving, mm. uh, leaving Fidelity. I wanted to help them build the franchise there. Uh, but of course, uh, it's much easier to operate independently, you know, much harder in many ways. But uh, Fate had other things in store for you. Yeah, and uh, now we're on our third fund. It's been four years of Castle Island. And uh, made a lot of mistakes, of course. A lot of things I got wrong, but glad we did it. And uh, finally feel like we have exit velocity. We have momentum as a firm. We're growing. One, one thing um, that stood out for me in a previous conversation we had was an aspect of your original thesis that you said you think is wrong, which is that the regulation or the regulators do not crack down on the space, DeFi specifically, to the extent you were maybe anticipating. I wonder if now, 
this conversation we had was maybe a year and a half ago, a year ago. Do you think that might be different now, given everything that's happened with Terra Luna and everything that's happened with rugs, technical hacks? Maybe, maybe you were, maybe you were right. No, I mean, being wrong about timing is the same thing as being wrong. You know, so let's say you're right eventually, but if you are in the asset allocation business and you're thematically right, but you know, wrong on timing, you're just wrong. Mm-hmm. You know, because you've only <laughs> got a window. You know, you've one career. You're only deploying at certain times. You know, um, so yeah, I was totally. I thought regulators would be way more aggressive, way earlier. They weren't. They waited too long. Is very laggy. Now I think they're probably going to overcompensate and be very aggressive on the other end. Terra Luna is a massive accelerant. I mean, it's pouring jet fuel on the regulatory flame. Mm-hmm. Every regulator in the world now knows about Doquan and Terra. And, uh, you know, they're going to be able to use that very effectively against the crypto industry because of the retail fallout. Mm-hmm. Because it was glo- no, no matter what country you're in, you had retail investors in your country affected. The scale of the devastation was enormous. $60 billion nominal wiped out. Less, you know, actual real wealth, but mm-hmm. $60 billion nominal. And then, of course, the fact that it represented itself as a stable instrument. That's very bad, because if people sort of knew it was risky and unstable, that's one thing. But here it's the violation of the expectations, exactly. which is so bad, because other things were built on the premise that it was stable. These fintech apps, these savings mm-hmm. apps, yield apps, those all you know, collapse. And that's why it's so bad when you know, things that are presumed to be stable in traditional markets break. Like um, when money market mutual funds broke the buck. That's why it's so bad. Because you get this fragility that's built up under the assumption that the thing is stable. And that happened with Terra. That's going to be really tough to work through. And people turn a blind eye to potential risks that could creep up because they assume that the system will always work as it has. Yeah. Sort of. That's sort of bias there. So yeah, I mean, you know, fundamentally, like the struggle that's happening between regulators and crypto is, you know, on the one hand, there's monetary repression happening in, you know, in out there in the real world, right? So inflation is very high. Um, interest rates are being held low, no mm-hmm. matter what kind of developed country you're in. And that is necessary in order to um, you know, reset the fiscal position of all these governments. Mm-hmm. They want you to hold government debt, right? They want you to hold these negative real yield instruments so that they can reset their balance sheets. Crypto is outside of that system. It's a sp- exit, mm-hmm. right? Whether it's Bitcoin or stable coins, right? Or something else. So that is the struggle. They don't want you to participate in that. It's the same way in the 1930s or 40s, gold in the U.S. was illegal, right? Because that was an alternative, right? You had to hold, you know, banks were forced to hold lots and lots of U.S. government debt. They wanted savers to hold the bad instrument. That's the same thing that's happening today. So that is the regulation struggle. It's not like, oh, you know, regulators want us to be prudent with how we allocate our money or whatever. No, it's the state needs a certain set of things to happen in finance and crypto is a total alternative and so that's the battle right so what does this macro backdrop the sort of fallout of terra luna mean for the adoption and proliferation of stablecoin what does it mean maybe for 
Jeremy Allaire and Co. Well, I mean, from the start, Circle USDC has positioned themselves as the more credible of, of the stablecoin cohort. Um, although, you know, even among the sort of fiat-backed stablecoins, which is, in my mind, the only valid way to create a stablecoin fully reserved, even within those, there's heterogeneity. Mm-hmm. You have different models. You have New York Trust Charter, mm-hmm. Nevada Trust Charter. You have the onshore money transmitter license state by state. You have the offshore model with Tether. Mm-hmm. That covers you have a whole... some backed by Chinese commercial paper. <laughs> yeah, Evergrande, uh, <laughs> allegedly. <laughs> and then you have different... Alleged, alleged. <laughs> no evidence. You have different approaches to OFAC compliance. If some would say uh, some stablecoins are being over-compliant. Mm-hmm. And then some are onshore, but they're not proactively blacklisting OFAC addresses. Some are offshore, and they're There's not There's an issue with nomenclature here, isn't there? Completely. I mean, the fact that they're all called stablecoins, it smashes everything together in this single taxonomy that's super, super different. You tried your damn hardest to get the industry to take up the mantra of crypto dollars. You know, I'm just one man, Frank. I can't. <laughs> <laughs> There's only so much I can do. I did write a paper about this. I think it was like crypto dollars, a story so far. But, you know, I learned my lesson there. You can't steer, you you can't can't, steer an aircraft carrier. You, you know? can't. You can't force a mule uphill to drink water. Is that the metaphor? Yeah, I think so. Something like that. That's it. Yeah. I might have mixed up. You that can metaphor. lead a mule. You can't. <laughs> you can lead a mule to water, but you can't make it drink the water. That's what it is. I thought it was a horse, but you know it doesn't matter. Mule just sounds more like stubborn to me. Here's the problem with stable coins. First of all, some of them are these crazy, insane things that nobody should ever create, like Terra or, and all, of the, <laughs> and all, all related things. And those are inherently unstable. So that doesn't make sense. Um, then also, you know, people don't like the fact that you're getting fiat currencies, which are very inflationary. I mean, is the dollar really that stable? You mm. know, I mean, come on. What are we, like 8% year over year inflation. Other fiat currencies are worse. Is it, even, is it fair to call them stables? Why don't we just call them what they are? It's a dollar, for the most part, on crypto rails. Yeah, that's an incredible point. I think, I think the reason why we call them, I mean, inherently, any currency is, is not stable. The point of it is to be a, a medium of exchange, not to sort of never change in Correct. value. Correct. They do change. And in some cases, like Argentina, they change quite rapidly and deteriorate very quickly. And a central bank's mandate is not to keep the currency stable relative to purchasing power. They don't want to keep it fixed and basically sterile, right? They want it to actually match the nominal output of the nation. But the juxtaposition of the market, of the crypto market, with what a stablecoin does makes it stable because crypto has been so volatile that (laughs) <laughs> this is the stable crypto. By virtue of that comparison. By sure. virtue of that comparison. But it, it really, when you think of what money is, you're, you're right. It's not, it's not meant to be stable. And the, and the priorities of those at the helm of shaping the market, that is not a priority for them either. And I mean, one step further, if you think about a stable coin, you're not getting any interest payments associated with it, right? So No, that kicks up to, that's why we can have this very fancy, lovely conference. Right, exactly. It's, it's the seniorage, right? So now inflation is high. 
interest rates are pretty high, mm-hmm. not as high as inflation. But um, you know, if your funds were in a bank, you'd be compensated a little bit, right? Yeah. You'd be, some of the bank would be passing some of it on. Stable coins, the beauty of them for issuers is no interest gets passed on. Should there be one where interest does get passed on? Yes, there should be. I think someone will make that. Yeah, I think it'll be popular. But so now there's this huge delta between inflation and interest. It's enormous. So there's you have to think of it as the convenience yield of holding a stable coin is you have an eight or nine percent uh, carrying cost of holding that stable coin on the blockchain, mm-hmm. not getting any interest payment. Um, so that means that it's implied that you are getting nine or eight percent worth of yield in terms of having it. So maybe you think you can earn that in crypto. Sure, but juxtaposing again with crypto, the reason why people are parking in stablecoin is because if they were leaving that to the whim of the market, it'd be, it would be down 50% sure. or 60%. <laughs> or in the case of Terra Luna, 100%. And the fact that they're holding in stablecoins as opposed to going all the way back to treasuries is telling. It means that they think there's you know almost 10% worth of yield in crypto to be found mm. somewhere opportunistically within the next year. Yeah. So it's telling. So how are you um, positioning yourself in the market right now? Are you deploying as fast as you were maybe six months ago? Where are the opportunities? Oh, all across the crypto space. Yeah, I mean, you know, we're in the fortunate position of having raised earlier this year and, um, you know, having watched the carnage unfold a little bit, valuations come down, not as far as I'd like. They came down. <laughs> Founder quality is up. I would say. I mean, you're only seeing, you know, much more committed founders. The other thing is because the regulatory gauntlet is kind of closing, you're seeing founders that are willing to kind of go to the distance and um, they are aware that they're doing something really difficult, you know? So you have to be eyes wide open about that. Before you could maybe be a little bit naive. Now we sort of know that the CFTC is activated, the SEC is activated. It's going to be challenging. You're going to eventually have to figure out how to comply, you know, or how to shape the rules, how to shape the regulation. And so, yeah, we're, we're deploying it at a healthy clip, I would say. Mm. Um, in DeFi in particular, I think DeFi has been kind of unloved in the crypto space from the venture perspective of last year. Um, in the, you know, everyone hates on NFTs, actually. You know, we're seeing in the mm. MSM, like, charts, NFT volumes down 90 Those charts are crazy. They are. I mean, I would, <laughs> I would question the data quality, actually. If it didn't come from coinmetrics.io. <laughs> typically, typically, when you see any data-driven claim in the mainstream press regarding crypto, it's wrong. Mm-hmm. Because nobody, because the data is hard. Well, what's the expression? There are lies, damn lies, and data. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, with something like NFT volumes, if you're not eliminating wash trading at the peaks, that's mm-hmm. going to make the decline look bigger. Fair enough. If you're not incorporating newer venues, that's one thing people fail to do all the time is they don't realize that if you have a fixed set of sort of venues you're querying and new venues emerge and you don't include them... It's not going to be a complete picture. You're not capturing the churn. You're not capturing the migration from venue to venue, which happens. So. And it happens at, it happens all the time. These These products are not incredibly sticky folks jump from one marketplace to the next depending on where they see opportunity so my, i bet you yeah. 90 per, i bet you like with almost 100 percent certainty that that article did not or did incorporate the wash trading 
I'm sure. Yeah. So I think you guys actually, a shout out to the block. You guys Thank have you. some very good data too. Great big, dashboard. Big fan of the dashboards. We 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 have some coin metric charts in there, I'm pretty sure. Less than I'd like, Frank. <laughs> Less than I'd like. But uh, yeah, I mean, NFT data is hard because there's a bunch of different blockchains. There's a ton of different venues and new ones are being created all the time. And uh, so you have to capture that. But we are active in that space, I would say, in the more sort of like real utility, real world applications of NFTs. That's very exciting to me. Now we're seeing real brands, uh, real businesses embracing NFTs, not just the sort of trading ape images, but uh, treating them as digital property and uh, something that people want to own for a long period of time and have persistence. That's actually pretty exciting. You made headlines recently for very vocally casting away the Bitcoin community to an extent, the fundamentalist. Yeah, I mean, not hopefully not the whole Bitcoin community. Um, I think anybody that holds Bitcoin is a Bitcoiner. You mm -hmm. know, that's my definition of Bitcoiner, which includes lots of people. Mm -hmm. uh, the one part of the community I sort of distance myself from is the the part that confuses Bitcoin with religious doctrine. Um, you know, I think religion is religion, money is money, and they're pretty distinct, and they should stay distinct. Do you think the reason why so many people have a religious view on Bitcoin is because many people are replacing religion with philosophy or many different types of things that we identify with? Completely. It's a modern, a modern disease is, um, is eliminating religion and, you know, traditional values like that and trying to find secular replacements, whether it's like SoulCycle or CrossFit or Bitcoin or veganism or Bitcoin or, uh, environmental, uh, you know, advocacy, mm -hmm. you know, the fear that mother nature is punishing us, right. Mm. With climate change, it's all the same thing. If you eliminate you know, the, the, the metaphysical um, stability that religion gives you, you're going to find, you have a God-shaped hole in your life now. Yeah, and, and putting aside whether or not God exists or not, I think that there is a, a God-like entity, but there is this innate human desire to have a thing that is metaphysical to which you are devoted. Correct, correct. I mean, and... Uh, and people want to have a calling. They want to be part of a broader mission. They want to subscribe to something. And uh, just because they may think it's secular doesn't mean it is. <laughs> and, you know, it's just people are wrong about that. And Bitcoiners, many of them actually do explicitly link religion and Bitcoin. So it's sort of they admit what they're doing. Um, even though Christianity, I think, has nothing really to do with money. Uh, it doesn't say much about it uh, aside from sort of <laughs> discouraging the excessive pursuit of wealth, mm -hmm. I would say. Um, and maybe Or being some... foolish about money. It does say a bit about that. It's, you know. But, um, you know, many Bitcoiners, um, they, they talk about Bitcoin in this, like, um, you know, ecumenical, <laughs> liturgical manner <laughs> and uh, don't realize what they're doing. And, um, you know, I think it's perfectly fine to distinguish the two. And, uh, and, and admit that, yes, it's important and money can have moral dimensions, but it's not religious. So that's the community I'm not a part of. You can't take it with you. 
Correct. Get ready for season three of the Tron Grand Hackathon 2022. There are a total of $1.2 million in prizes up for grabs in Web3, DeFi, GameFi, NFTs, and the newly added Academy and Ecosystem tracks. So what are you waiting for? Join Tron for an opportunity to showcase your work, win funding for your project, and network with other builders in the community. Tron Grand Hackathon, presented by TronDAO. To learn more, visit trondow.org. What do you think are the most overlooked opportunities right now in the market? Good question. So there's a few things that have changed in the last year. Like uh, maybe 12 months ago, I would have said sort of Bitcoin-related startups or because that was kind of uh, overlooked space for a long time. Mm -hmm. But actually, there's a whole bunch of Bitcoin-focused funds that exist today. There's probably about a half dozen. There's good amounts of capital supporting Bitcoin-only businesses, lining businesses. And so that arbitrage has been closed to a certain degree. Um, I, would, I would have also said, you know, pertinent to where we are here today, mm -hmm. um, businesses focus on crypto dollarization, giving access uh, to focusing on the global audience, including emerging markets, giving them access to crypto dollars and letting people escape their local currencies. You know, so really high quality wallet experiences built for the global south, let's say. Mm. That has also begun to close. Like we're also seeing really high quality startups in that sector too. Um, it's easier to identify places where there's an overabundance of investment. Um, what I, one sector I really like is the under collateralized lending space. So basically real world lending on blockchain rails. So um, not the sort of over collateralized lending that you see, which was the bread and butter of DeFi, but the under collateralized, which is basically real credit creation. It just so happens to be happening on DeFi, on blockchains. That's very interesting to me because that is going to be the way we get out of this credit crisis that we just had, move on to a more credible, transparent model of lending where the cash flows are transparent. You can see the risk in the book from a third party I'm, perspective. I'm glad that you brought up the credit crisis that we just went through. Do you... Do you anticipate that many of the once mighty lending firms, I won't necessarily name names um, as a courtesy to you, <laughs> but do you think that they will transition to a more blockchain-based model? I think the ones that uh, succeed will. I mean, uh, you know, typically it's not that incumbents are able to pivot, it's that new insurgent firms uh, demonstrate new ideas. Right, so that's the innovator's dilemma. That's what's so unique um, about the crypto market. Even a company like Circle had its difficult times and now is just a behemoth worth, um, I think, yeah. $7 billion Billions or so. I remember the Circle when Circle was a Bitcoin company. Of you course, remember? yeah. That was a bit before my time, but I am aware of it. I mean, the, in some It was sense, like a retail, you know, sending Bitcoin around the world type of type of firm. And and for a long time I thought to myself, wow, you know, so Circle, I think there was an issue with banking. Circle didn't get access to banking and Coinbase did at mm. around the same time, I think because of who their backers were. And then I was always so wistful about that. I was like Circle could have been Coinbase. But, you know, it's incredible now after a long time in the wilderness Circle came all the way around, they issued the biggest stable coin, the biggest credible stable coin, and they're doing incredibly well. 
Coinbase went public struggling a bit, Circle could well surpass them all these years later. Yeah. It's an incredible journey to have witnessed. And we may see a similar similar story arc with some of the firms that have been not obliterated, but just completely, you know, hit by this crisis. Yeah. But to your question before, I do think that if you are a forward-looking and you are a smart lender in the crypto space, you're going to look to move to a hybridized structure where, yeah, sure, you have a centralized element to your business. You rely on legal contracts for a lot of it. But also, you benefit from putting a lot of your cash flows and your activity on chain mm -hmm. because re regulators will reward you for that because you're engaging in real-time disclosures. Your clients will reward you for that because now they can look at a dashboard that queries the blockchain to see the risk as, you know, as opposed to blindly trusting you, right? There was a lot of blind trust. Too much. Ironically. Too much. In a space that is meant to be trustless. Yeah, that irony has been really browbeaten into us by, <laughs> by the by media the critics. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but there is some truth to that. Um, there is definitely some irony to that. Oh, yeah. But it's our job now to sort of like pick up the pieces. And uh, instead of waiting for regulators to insist we do things a certain way, just be proactive and be more transparent as an industry. You know, and you could say this is about the sort of token sector as well, like about their transparency. Like, yeah, the SEC will eventually ask tokens to do disclosures. Why don't we do it ahead of them asking? Yeah. Right? So I would say for both the credit sector and the token sector, it's obvious what, what the sort of final outcomes are going to be here. The industry is going to have to meet the regulators in the middle, and they're going to have to be far more transparent about what they're doing. I know people like to say the blockchain is very transparent. It's... It has theoretical transparency, but not practical transparency. Yes. It's very hard to query data from there. Nobody does it well. And the firms that are, you know, ought to be using it for transparency's sake are not very proactive in terms of building analytics dashboards and things like that. Um, and so it's all well and good to trumpet that and be like, yeah, DeFi is the most transparent form of financial innovation that's ever existed. But in practice, if only a tiny minority of people with access, you know, and the ability and the means to query that data and understand it, then it's not really transparent. Who does the job of querying that information in a world where we have to do disclosures for various blockchains? Who's doing that work? Is it, is it the foundation? Is it the larger investors? Or is it the exchanges? The challenge should be to narrow informational asymmetries. So insiders naturally have a privileged access to information. Their job, their objective should be to narrow that gap as much as possible, mm -hmm. such that any random outsider could come in and understand key features of these systems without having inside access. So if it's a you know, token project or something that uh, has cash flows on chain, they should be trying to surface all relevant possible information in a Dune dashboard or something, mm -hmm. or their own analytics dashboard, right? Such that anybody could go verify everything down to the transactional level. That should be total possible. And, you know, so like Capital IQ we have in TradFi, you look at the aggregates and then you can drill down back to the individual quarterly report where that 
you know, data point comes from. We should be able to do the same in crypto. We should be able to look at an aggregate, uh, you know, disclosure regarding revenue or cash flows or protocol. You should be able to drill down into the individual specific transaction, which you know, it references. So that basically doesn't exist today. Mm -hmm. That's where we should be going. We should build that. Should do it's that. hard. That'd be, be a big money maker. You're a prolific podcaster. This is actually in the script. I haven't said it. <laughs> um, and the host of On the Brink. Have you ever had a guest that just completely blew you away? Um, yeah. I mean, we've done 350 episodes. I, and I edited most of them. You should do one of those threads where it's like, I've interviewed 350 of the most interesting people in the world, and I this is what I've learned. I wrote a book about it. Here's my book. <laughs> Here's what I learned. Grinders get up at 6 a.m. <laughs> and they drink one green smoothie. Um, what, who have been some of the best guests? My goodness. I have some guests that I feel very lucky to have interviewed. Mm -hmm. George Selgin, one of my heroes. You know, one of the most balanced academics. Larry White, also adjacent to George Selgin. Mm -hmm. The free banking patriarchs. The patriarchs of the free banking literature, which I think crypto people should know more about. Um, I've had some guests on the energy front that have blown my mind. I mean, when I've doved into the energy space mm -hmm. through the intersection with Bitcoin mining and I talk to subject matter experts that spend their whole careers thinking about how, you know, <laughs> electrons get from the generation plant to through the wires, you know, to the end user, the complexity there is beyond anything I've seen in crypto. It's actually a deeper rabbit hole than crypto. So I've been very impressed by some of the folks in that side, I find it very interesting. That's why I'm still spending so much time on Bitcoin mining, even though the sector is in disarray, mm -hmm. is because it's actually a window into what the, the transition that's happening in the power space in the US, mm -hmm. which is fascinating. It's a huge transition. And somehow Bitcoin mining is playing a key part of that. It's definitely a way to learn about the really rapid changes, the influence of uh, legislation on the energy sector. This Inflation Reduction Act is very important in terms of um, the renewable transition in the U.S. I don't know, we might have overstated as Bitcoiners the role that we, Bitcoin, is playing in the energy transition in the U.S., but it definitely is a way to learn about it really quickly. If you want to understand Bitcoin mining, you just have to understand how power is generated. So you've enjoyed the free banking episodes and the energy mining-related episodes? Yeah, those are just two endlessly interesting subjects for me. Yeah. So we'll have to check that out. Well, uh, listen to those episodes, folks, to learn more about those subjects. Nick Carter, thanks so much for joining us on the show. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Once again, we've been joined by our guest, Nick Carter, partner at Castle Island Ventures. Where can our listeners learn more about you and what you're doing? So I used to post on Twitter. I don't anymore. That's right. I don't post on Twitter anymore. Have you, when was the last time you tweeted? Well, I've been retweeting some stuff here and there when I'm contractually obliged to. Fair enough. But uh, I don't know, like probably since June, really. Mm. And do you feel freed from the shackles that is the slings and arrows of crypto Twitter? Well, it's that whenever you are active on Twitter, and I'm sure you feel this, you experience audience capture, right? Mm -hmm. So the, you're always fighting your own personal battle against the algorithm's attempt to enslave you, mm -hmm. right? The algorithm wants you to 
tweet just the thing, the exact things that get maximum, uh, in, you know, attention. And that creates a change in your brain. You know, you get trained Mm -hmm. like a rat getting a little dopamine hit or whatever. You get trained to tweet just things that are maximum clout and attention to your own intellectual detriment. Mm -hmm. Everybody's fighting that same fight. And I feel freed from that, mm-hmm. which is great. I think I can be more intellectually honest and more curious about things. I recommend everybody gets soft canceled. That's my recommendation. It's good for you. Because then you will go through this sort of intellectual reawakening process. Correct. So the, the place to find my aggregated work is nickcarter.info. That's if really that's the repository of everything. Mm-hmm. More coming soon. More coming soon. Thank you so much for being on the show. Appreciate it. The Scoop will be back for you again with another great guest. Have an awesome day.